Hey everyone and welcome to Serious Business Episode 3. I'm Patrick Gray. As usual on this new podcast, which is, uh, you know, which discusses topics unrelated to information security, uh, I'm joined by Australian comedian Dan Illick. He works for AJ Plus as a satirist, and we'll be discussing a few topical items of the last week, and boy, do we have some good stuff for you. Uh, we're talking about journalist Seymour Hersh's latest investigative work, Is It Pure Fiction? Uh, we're talking Deflategate, we're talking Elon Musk being a douche, and we're talking Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, so, Dan, let's jump right in. Uh, and, of course, Seymour Hersh has dropped a bombshell bit of work this week, claiming uh, that the official White House narrative of the raid uh, that killed bin Laden is utter horseshit. Now, Cy Hersh is, of course, the guy who broke the My Lai Massacre uh, story from the Vietnam War in 1969, changed the trajectory of the Vietnam War. He broke the Abu Ghraib scandal uh, of 2004 in Iraq. So you would think there's some credibility here uh, in his reporting. The only problem, I guess, with that is for the last decade, Seymour Hersh is also the type of guy who believes wind farms are a mind control device being installed on Earth by space aliens. Know what I mean? I think my favourite thing about um, Seymour Hersh's crazy conspiracy theories is that he uh, was under the impression that the Afghanistan war was basically a continuation of the Knights Templar, and that <laughs> the, that that really all the Afghan all, all the all the special forces. Uh, guys that were on the ground were considered themselves to be just completely completing Jesus's work from the 13th century and going about trying to convert every mosque into a church. I don't think that's too crazy, but uh, I think that that could make sure that could make for another great Indiana Jones sequel. But uh, it's probably not true. <laughs> I think yeah, well. Seymour Hirsch. He was giving a lecture at George Washington University in Qatar, um, which is an interesting place that I'll tell you about one day when I'm not on a contract. With where my money, my paycheck comes from, Qatar. Um, it, it, just on a side note, Qatar is the only country in the world that has given the Taliban their very own consulate. Anyway, <laughs> so he was giving this lecture and he basically said that the United States uh, would, would fake a terrorist attack by Iranian special forces people on their own territory in order to to start a war with Iran and nuke Iran. And I think that's uh that's a bit that's a bit crazy. That's it's uh, a little bit out there. It's a little bit out I mean, there. It's not something I mean, you expect you, from a from a renowned journalist who's reporting for the New York Times actually, you know, helped fill in some of the gaps of the Watergate coverage, for example. This guy was the but, real deal. What happened? But but Patrick, for you and me that idea sounds crazy, right? Like, that idea is mental. But for people on the right side of politics in this country, in the United States, they would just go, oh, yeah, of course that's what would happen. The Alec Joneses of this world, the Bill mm. O'Reilly's of this mm. world, uh, the Fox Newses of this world, they would take that narrative and really and run with it as if it could absolutely be true. And that is what is the scariest part about this because if you say something to be true enough for long enough, people will end up believing it. Well, we should mention, of course, we should steer this back to talking about the piece that, that has got Why us talking about Why are we talking about, about it? Yes. <laughs> that, that's got us talking about all of this, uh, which is, you know, Cy Hirsch has written a book an excerpt of which has uh, appeared in the London Review of Books website. Uh, it's kicked off a major controversy because it really uh, um, takes aim at the official narrative around the killing of Osama bin Laden in Pakistan in 
about a bad, you know, uh, back in uh, 20, was it 2011? So, you know, he's written this piece saying not only did the Pakistanis know that bin Laden was in this compound, mm. but they were keeping him prisoner there. Uh, that the intelligence that led to the US locating him didn't come from really amazing work by the CIA as portrayed in the film uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, but in fact, it was a walk-in to the embassy who was an ex-Pakistani spy who said, oh, this is where he is. I would like the $25 million reward, please. And, uh, you know, this piece says that he's since been re- that guy has since been resettled in um, in Washington, D.C. and consults the CIA. Uh, so, you know, a lot of claims made here that, you know, fundamentally attack the, the the premise of the official narrative. And I've got to say, as crazy as some of it sounds, mm. other bits to me seem entirely plausible. Like, you know, for example, the ele- electricity in Abbottabad went yep. out two hours before the raid, came back on 15 minutes afterwards. Yep. Uh, coincidence? Yeah, and here's the other thing about... I, I, I don't want to sound just as conspiracy theory-ridden as Hirsch either, but there are some things about the US story the US narrative that they portray to the world that don't make sense. The number one thing for me is the idea that they flew the body out to an aircraft carrier off the off the coast of Pakistan and then dumped the body in the ocean. Like that to me sounds strange. Like that to me sounds uh, like somebody's trying to hide something uh, to the point where uh, to the point where there's meant to be obfuscation. Now, the reason for that was because they didn't want to have a grave and mm. didn't want the grave to turn into uh, a shrine. A, yeah. a shrine, And that's a good excuse. But put it this way. We saw video footage of Saddam Hussein in his spider hole in Iraq being captured. And we accidentally saw Saddam Hussein, footage of Saddam Hussein being hung. Like the biggest baddie of the time previous to Osama bin Laden was Saddam Hussein. And we saw we saw evidence of this capture and the demise of that man uh, on video for the whole of the world, the, all the world to see. And yet there is nothing that's been released of Osama bin Laden. And it's it strikes me that uh, if these guys, it, it's, it strikes me to be strange that that Osama bin Laden wasn't captured alive to begin well, with. Well, look, they were never going to bring him in alive. And this is the thing. If they've got their helmet cam footage of this raid, basically what they did is they whacked an invalid, right? So yeah. that's, you know, it's like, you know, you always see those YouTube videos of dickheads speeding at 200 kilometres an hour <laughs> and then the police arrest them. It's like, if you're going to break right. the law, don't right. release the evidence. So I think there might be a little bit of that, um, that it would be right. legally complicated. Oh, there was an old man. There was an old... You just killed an old... You just shot the face off of an old man. shit on YouTube, you know what I mean? That's that's going to get you in the Hague. So you know, I mean, but this isn't this isn't the part that interests me. Do you know what I mean? The part that interests me is when they said Pakistan had absolutely no idea we were going to do this. Yeah, hey, they didn't know. Of course, they bloody knew. You know, the electricity went out for two and a half hours. Now I'm sure the Americans could have organised that by their own devices, but it seems more from a planning point of view, it seems more of a nice to have than a must have. So it's just like, hey guys, would you mind? cutting the power down there just for a couple of hours. Um, You know, of course, they met no resistance. No cops even turned up, for God's sakes. You know what I mean? So it just seems that the Pakistanis would know, and of course the Pakistanis wouldn't want it known, that they cooperated with this. So that seems a really plausible statement that Pakistan did know they were coming but didn't want that to be known because it would have pissed off an awful lot of people in their country. You know what I mean? Like what happened to the body, things like that. I mean, that that... To me, that's I don't really care. <laughs> you know? 
Well, it's kind of true. Um, I, there's something to be said about Pakistan. A lot of uh, academic theorists think that Pakistan is the centre of terror in in, the, in Central Asia and, and that they are the true um, arbiters of whether the Afghanistan war or not could end um, to the point where Afghanistan is 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 looking after the Taliban, and to the point where people high up in in the Pakistani government um, feel the need to kind of shelter Afghanistan uh, from stability because it's in Pakistan's best mm. interest to have a neighbour that isn't stable because they do receive all this aid and they do receive um, uh, tonnes of money from uh, from Western governments to, to pretend to be doing something about the war in Afghanistan. Uh, so much so uh, there's, a, there's a saying around academic circles that um, Imran Khan, who former cricketer is now a politician uh, in Afghanistan, the, his nickname is Taliban Khan. Nice. (laughs) Absolutely true. I'm sure he loves it too, that nickname. Uh, But, you know, of course, let's not forget too that it was the Pakistani ISI who, uh, you know, fund, uh, well, who were funded by the United States to arm the Mujahideen to fight the Russians. You know, so there's a long history of Pakistan having links with, uh, you know, the Mujahideen, who, of course, morphed into uh, the Taliban and other other elements of the Mujahideen that truly hardcore became al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So, yeah, it's a very... It's a very complicated political landscape in Pakistan. So, you know, the idea that they might want to run a little bit of deception, you know, I'm putting that in the entirely plausible camp. Uh, But then there are other assertions in this Cy Hirsch piece, like the ISI actually had captured bin Laden in 2006 and that compound in Abbottabad was actually a jail. So he was actually sitting there in a cell, he was guarded by ISI and of course, you know, the ISI guards who were keeping him in there were instructed to uh, leave their posts as soon as they heard the the choppers coming, this sort of thing. I mean, it just seems, that seems a stretch for me because it just seems a very complicated way to skin a cat. If he was being held there, why would you need to bother with the raid at all? Just get one of the guards to tootle upstairs, shoot him in the head, wrap the body up, drive it across the border to a base in Afghanistan, drop it off to the Americans and say, there you go. And, you know, Hirsch is also saying that the original plan was for America to um, claim they'd killed him in a drone strike, Mm. you know, sort of show off the body that way and cover up the raid. So, I mean, if they were planning that level of deception first, why bother with the raid if you had the cooperation of the Pakistanis? Like, there's, there's so many internal contradictions in this piece that it just, it just it's the Chewbacca defence, Dan. It just does not make sense. Yeah, but at the same time, though, I know I know feel bad because Hirsch has told some... Hirsch has told some furfies. I wonder if the name. I wonder if the name Hirsch is going to be the new furfy. Uh, Hirsch has told some furfies lately that kind of discredits him in many in many ways. But at the same time, I feel like the U.S. narrative on on Bin Laden just isn't rock solid. No, no. Enough. So we've got two competing, completely bullshit narratives. That's that's where we are right now. And I, you know, I hate to be the person that you know says that. Hirsch has done done his job by sowing seeds of doubt, but I think that's exactly what he's done. And now no one's no one's really going to know the true story, uh, and we all just have to believe Zero Dark Thirty and believe that's what happened, and believe that um, Joel and Nash Edgerton shot uh, Osama bin Laden in the head. It's it's funny actually. It was actually Callan Mulvey. 
uh, who fired the fatal bullet. The Australian actor, Callan Mulvey, um, was in that film. And what's funny is he lived in Byron Bay for a long time and I was acquainted with him years ago. Uh, he was a friend of a friend and, you know, just hung out a few times, had a couple of beers. This is after he'd done Home and Away, but before he'd done, uh, what was it? Underbelly. 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 So it was before he'd done that. Uh, he's a really lovely bloke, but, um, yeah, and then he, he sort of dropped off the map for a bit and the next <laughs> thing you know I'm watching Zero Dark Thirty and I'm like, Cal just killed Bin Laden. That's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but it gave me a real start. I had no idea. Um <laughs> But yeah, look, there's, there was clearly, um, you know, and as a journalist, I've seen a lot of people making statements on the run. I know what it looks like. And there was clearly a lot of that going on. And that's something that, gel, you know, that gels for me, right? And that's something that Cy Hirsch has argued in this piece is they were really making up the narrative as they went along. Because first it was he was reaching for a gun, he was hiding behind his wife, and then it was like, well, he wasn't hiding behind his wife and he wasn't actually mm. reaching for a gun. Uh, yeah. You know, it just... There was a lot of there was a lot of making it up as they went along on that, which is, I suppose, you know, there, there's a credibility gap that's that's opened up there, and Hirsch has moved to fill it. I kind of get I kind of get that kind of minutia. Um, for me, it's like the big plot points that don't kind of make sense, and also the big fuck up, like the helicopter being destroyed. Well, that's um, what that's what Hirsch said. You know, screwed them. That's what screwed them out of their plan to say they did it in a drone strike. Is because all of a sudden yeah. they had a the downed bloody you know stealth chopper in the middle of downtown, <laughs> you know, downtown yeah. suburb. Uh, yeah, I think that's what I think. For me, that's kind of when you go, ah, right, something went wrong, mm. and this whole thing is being live tweeted by a guy three blocks over. That was great, and <laughs> and uh, like how. How is this all working? And um, for me, the big thing is just the footage and the body and that that being disposed at sea was, I just felt like that was incredulous. Like that was just getting rid of all kind of evidence. Now I sound like Alex Jones. There is no difference yeah. between me but, and But I mean, Alex are you, you going to want to keep evidence of a war crime? You know what I mean? Like it, it, it's it's just as simple yeah, as but, that. Like when yeah, they but, captured when they captured um, you know Saddam Hussein, they didn't shoot him on sight. They handed him over to the Iraqi government, which you could argue had some sort of you know legal authority, right? And they sentenced him to death and they hung him. Whereas when you're just turning up to to bump someone off, I mean, you know, it's the it's the don't put videos of you speeding on YouTube principle. I reckon. <laughs> I seriously think it's as simple as that. There would have been some defense defense counsel there saying. If there's no evidence, we can say he reached for his gun. Self-defense. Boom. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. I haven't really thought about that. I just think, well, they're America. They do many, many, many awful things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and don't ever worry about litigious ramifications of it. But couldn't I'm that be used? This, that I'm, would be used as a pretty nasty bit of propaganda on behalf of Islamists, though, you would think, right? If they've got this footage of them gunning down right. this sort of helpless old man, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. No, you, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. <laughs> There's this awesome book. Um, I highly recommend you, you check it out or at least read a few reviews of it, um, Patrick Gray. It's called uh, The Modern Mercenary. It's by an academic out of Georgetown called Sean McFate, and it's all about the use of and the outsourcing of private military contractors. Mm. And it, this is a topic for another day, but here's a great statistic where uh, basically a third of the Iraq war was run by private military contractors. But in Afghanistan today, the ratio is one to one. Mm. Half of the Iraq 
uh, a half of the Afghanistan operation is just run by private military contractors. And there's this great quote that he has in his book about what happens when a private military contractor shoots someone. Um, versus what happens if a Marine shoots someone. If a Marine shoots someone by accident, they have to go to trial or face a court-martial or or go to jail. But if a private military contractor shoots someone, they only have two questions, aisle or window. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's it. Get get out of here. Yeah. That's the And I guess it's it's left to the local police to investigate it as a typical homicide, and that's not going to go very far, is it? That, well, that's right, yeah, particularly, um, yeah. But anyway, I just think, I, I, I don't think the Abadabad police could have been on, on guard for this particular thing. Abadabad, <laughs> is a, Abadabad is a quiet resort town about 20 k's outside of Islamabad. So it's not like, um, I don't think it would be a hotbed of, um, uh, of jaywalking. So do you think we'll see any secondary reporting? That's the thing that will... That's the thing that could confirm or deny this, and I, I just don't I see don't that. I don't think happening, so. You know? This whole this whole thing from that Hirsch has got is based on uh, a cup. It is based on no source documents and is based on just the hearsay of like a retired uh, uh, ISI a, guy. A, yeah, because spies are so well ISI known for being guy. truthful. Yeah, but yeah, he retired in '92. Like he's not like he did, it's not like he retired yesterday. He's like yeah. he's been retired forever. So it's and it's a whole bunch of un, unnamed sources as well. So who knows if we're going to um, get the true story out? But like it's certainly, if anything, Pat, it's a really good read. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it is. It's fun. Uh, you know, whether or not it's fiction, I guess. I guess we may yeah. never know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hirsch, Hirsch has basically done fan fiction for, for Zero Dark Thirty. It's like his own version of it. That's right. Now, uh, we're going to move on to a different topic now and cover something that's been happening in America. And I must confess, the only reason I, I know anything about this is because I watch your AJ Plus videos, uh, which are fantastic. <laughs> Everyone should check out Dan's AJ Plus videos, by the way, for Al Jazeera Plus. There is this thing called Deflategate. Uh, oh. There's been there's been so much drama in the world of NFL. Dan Illick, tell us all about Deflategate. So Deflategate is based around the idea that somebody during the Patriots' last few matches of the season of NFL has been deflating the balls to make them easier to catch. And after a bit of investigation and after the uh, the collection of text messages from various team members and people that oper- operate around the team, it's come to the, the NFL has come to the conclusion to say that most probably the culprit of Deflategate was Tom Brady. And Tom, Tom Brady is, is one of the uh, star quarterbacks of the New England Patriots. And uh, it's come to basically said that Tom Brady has been asking people to deflate balls so that when he catches them, they're a little bit easier to catch. <laughs> See, I think this is just such a quaint sports scandal because here we have them sort of having group sex with 18-year-olds and you yeah. know, shooting up peptides and doing cocaine in public places and just, you know, getting into fights and shit, you know, and going to prison for assault. Whereas over there, yeah. what, you got, you let a couple of, you let a, you let a bit of air out of the ball and that's that's the scandal? Well, I mean, let's not forget um, the, the concussion scandal that's been dogging the NFL. Let's not forget the domestic violence scandals that have yeah, been dogging yeah, the NFL. Ray Rice pulled his girlfriend out of a lift by her hair. That even made the news here. I mean, that was, there's a, that was there's pretty a, awful. There's a lot of bad stuff that's been happening in the NFL. And deflect, what Deflategate did was deflect all of that and take that off the table in terms of the NFL. Um, one big thing the NFL did this year was they did receive 
rescind their charity status. So they're yeah. no longer the world's biggest, most profitable charity. Was this <laughs> after an- your AJ Plus video on this? Yeah, I like to think I changed that. I yeah, think it was yeah. you. Yeah. I right. think it was you because you actually got you got to meet a whole bunch of players and coaches, didn't you, as part of that uh, report? Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, like, I didn't do, I didn't do dick. I just made jokes to their face. You know, that's that's all I do. That's my. Forte. I know, but it was it was good work. But yeah, I mean, what are these guys like? Because NFL in the United States, we like to have you know think of our sports stars here in Australia. We've got a population of what twenty two million people. In the US, yeah. you know, this football it's such a big industry. I mean, it's multi billion dollar <laughs> thing, and the contracts are ridiculous, and these people are Huge. like superstars. So, what yeah, was it yeah. like actually just being able to go into that world for a little bit? Well, the cool thing was I was completely – it was about my second week on the job and I was completely befuddled and I didn't know who anyone was. And luckily, um, we neither did my producer. Um, And it's not just because she was female. It's just because she wasn't a fan of the sport. Yeah. Uh, But our sound guy was from Arizona State University where uh, we were in Phoenix and he was a a young kid from Arizona State University. So he had his – he had my, my microphones plugged into his Zoom and he had cans on and he would point me in the right direction and he would say, oh, that's so-and-so, you should talk to them. Oh, that's the so-and-so, you should talk to them. Oh, that's, that guy's the coach, you should talk to him. So if I didn't have my sound guy on the ground, uh, that package wouldn't have been, would just be me in a room. Um, Talking to the catering looking, guys because you didn't know who anyone was. Well, at least they had food and that would have been interesting. But, <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it's pretty astounding, and it's pretty astounding that after all of this, that Tom Brady has kind of said that he he didn't touch the balls. The balls, the 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 balls were the regulation PSI, but he's now been caught um, red-handed, and now he's been suspended for four matches. Um, and I personally would have liked to have seen uh, the Seahawks quarterback be able to kick him in the nutsack three times. I reckon that would have been the appropriate uh, punishment. Yeah, the appropriate punishment. That's how we do it in. Australian, mate. That's right. <laughs> Rochambeau. You touch my balls, I cut. I kick yours. <laughs> That's right. Sounds fair. Sounds very fair. But, um, yeah, I guess this uh, Tom Brady guy is just going to have to uh, go cry into his gigantic pile of money now. What I love, Pat, is that you say this Tom Brady guy. What you don't understand is Tom Brady, he is he's the dipper of his day. Is he the Shane Warne of America? <laughs> That's right. He's the Shane Warne of America. <laughs> This is he, he. He is having sex with Giselle. Giselle's, oh, really? Yeah. He kind of like looks he, like Captain America, doesn't he? Exactly. He's he's Captain America with deflated balls. Yes. <laughs> nice. I think that's as good a place as any to leave that piece from here. And we're going to move on to another American icon, which is Elon Musk. Uh, you know, founder of PayPal turned, you know, Bond villain. Uh, of course, he's the founder of Tesla Cars. They've just launched the um, the Tesla home battery. Uh, the guy is well known to be a very driven individual, but apparently he might have he might have taken that just a step too far when he really dressed down an employee who skipped out on a work event because he wanted to do the crazy thing. I mean, how selfish is this? He wanted to go witness the birth of his child. <laughs> Disgusting, uh, reprehensible. And Elon Musk uh, was not having this. Was not having it. <laughs> Look, uh, he, I, can I tell you something, Pat? I am. I'm a secret admirer of Elon Musk. I love Elon Musk. Oh, I think he's whenever, fantastic as well. Whenever I've seen Elon Musk talk, I get, I get, uh, I get butterflies in my stomach. I think he's like uh, Steve Jobs times 10 yeah. like he stands head and shoulders above everyone and maybe he gives, he gives good twitter as well 
gives great Twitter. And I, 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 if I ever got to review the Tesla, I would give it just a terrible review just to have an interaction with him. Just to- <laughs> <laughs> This is the biggest piece of shit I've ever stepped inside. I mean, it's it's kind of, for me, it's kind of disappointing that this uh, story has come out. Like, this has kind of shattered, shattered my view is of this the, Is this the, there is no Santa moment for you, is it? It is, yeah, because I've always imagined what it would be like to work with Elon Musk and work for him. Like I, I, I secretly think in the back of my head, oh, you know, it'd be great. It would be great to work at at um, SpaceX or um, or Tesla or or um, or Sun City or any of these great startups that he started to actually change the way we're fundamentally doing things in the world. And I think that's really cool. Uh, his wife came out. His ex-wife came out um, a few. Uh, months ago with an interesting article in Vanity Fair about just what it was that what it was that Elon Musk uh, had that made him successful and what it was was just sheer determination to work the entire time and an obsessive quality that meant that there was nothing else in his life Mm. (laughs) so this is why Elon Musk is Elon Musk today and you know if he's got to be that and occasionally send a rude email you know, to that's okay. That's okay if that's he can revolutionise the energy and transportation industries single-handedly. <laughs> you know, maybe it's going to take a little bit of work. <laughs> yeah, and also at the same time, um, I like to slack off at work sometimes. Don't tell my boss. You know, I you know I have quite <laughs> I have a quite few hours in the middle of the day sometimes. And, you know, I I I don't think I'd be able to have that with Elon Musk. I think I'd have to be on target the entire time. Yeah, no, you're not. You're not Musk material. I don't, think. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I, I don't think I am mass material. I want to do the least amount of work for the most amount of pay possible. So there you go. There is no Easter Bunny. Santa Claus doesn't exist. And occasionally, Elon Musk is a bit of a hyper competitive douche. Ah, uh, but le- oh, come on. I know. Look, look, look. Once he makes a hyper loop, then you can call him a hyper competitive douche. I want to. I want to ride in the hyper loop. Come on, Musk. What's a hyper loop? Oh, Hyperloop is this great invention that he's created. He wants to basically, you know, when you when you go to the shops, you go to like um, uh, Woolworths or Coles, and uh, when they have too much money in their till, they put the money in a little capsule and yeah, they yeah, put yeah. it in a, in a tube and it goes, yeah, yeah, they're goes cool. thunk, thunk. Um, he basically wants to create that at scale uh, to run a train between San Francisco and Los Angeles in a vacuum tube. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. That's sort of like the, uh, the way people get around in uh, Futurama. Yeah, exactly. This is this is, you know, we need people like him. We need like four more Elon Musk's. Yeah, on yeah, this maybe. Planet. Well, he could clone himself. I'm sure he's working on it. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yes, that's right. Now, speaking of four more, we're up to number four here. How was yes. that for a segue? That was segue. Good segue. Now, look, you got to understand something, Americans. There's a lot of American listeners to this podcast. You got to understand something about us Australians, right? We've never fully recovered from the fact that you took. 19, there's 1979 George Miller directed masterpiece Mad Max, and you redubbed over the audio to put American accents on it for the US release. Boo. We have never forgiven America for this. Boo. This is, of course, uh, the movie that put Mad Max uh, that put. I'm sorry, Mel Gibson. You can see how I'd make that mistake. Put Mel Gibson on the map. It was it was really a masterpiece at the time. The Australian government was offering insane uh, tax breaks for people doing film. Right, so George Miller at the time, yep. I believe he was a doctor. Uh, he went round to a bunch of surgeons and said, "Hey, uh, if you guys all chip in for, for me to make this movie, 
uh, you can't possibly lose. So as a result, yeah. the Australian film industry at that time produced some of the world's worst films. Quentin Tarantino <laughs> is a huge fan of Australia's, uh, you know, tax loophole films. It's, it's, he says it's his favourite genre. But a few gems got through and Mad Max was one of them. It was shot on a tiny budget, had the highest earnings to cost ratio of any film since uh, until the Blair Witch Project came along, which was a piece of shit, you know, shot on a freaking <laughs> handy cam. Who cares about that movie now? No one. But Mad Max, total masterpiece, lives on in pop culture, launched the career of, uh, of both George Miller and Mel Gibson. Uh, they edited it in his living room, in George Miller's living room. They did the sound in his kitchen. It was guerrilla filmmaking at its best. And finally, after many, many years, and we're not talking about Mad Max 2 and 3 set in the desert. We're talking about the original when society was still collapsing and, you know, bikers Mm. and very, very cool. So finally, George Miller, the original director, the new Mad Max is coming out. It's years behind. I actually know a couple of guys who worked on this in Africa. They were building the cars uh, for use in this. They've been doing it for years. It is nearly ready. And the early reviews are in and apparently... It's fucking awesome. Oh, mate, I am I am just salivating. I think we might have some of the same friends in common. I, I know some of the people that built some of those cars as well. And they've there were been a working, lot of them. <laughs> yeah, and they've been working with a George on this for 10 years of their lives. Like this mm. has been a film that has gone again, stopped again, gone again, stopped again. George Miller has spent $450 million yep. of money on this film and yep. he's hoping it works because See, he's got two more films in the can yeah. ready to go. But this is like, what I love about it. It's the original director and the first movie made on a micro budget. Two and three were about putting money in the bank. Then he goes off, does Happy Feet, you know, makes himself a big-time director and then he's like revisiting the franchise. I don't know how he convinced the financiers to pump this much money into it, but he's just... You know, it, the the twists and turns in the production with this thing, they were going to shoot it in the Australian outbreak. Yes, they were going to shoot it in Broken <laughs> Hill. Yeah. But, uh, and the unfortunately, and then the whole unfortunately, place yeah. Up. Yeah. Were, yeah, the reason why they're going to shoot it in Broken Hill is because Broken Hill was like beautiful and red and deserty. But unfortunately, we had a significant amount of rain that year and the desert bloomed. It, it was so, covered in pretty little spring flowers. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a complete waste of time to start shooting there. So they had to pack up the entire set and move it to Namibia. Mm. Uh, I am so pumped for this. I I just don't know about the marketing of it. I don't think people know who George Miller is from the marketing. I mean, if you've seen the trailer, the trailer says, from the mastermind of George Miller. That's not going to get people on seats. They should say, from the director of Happy Feet and the creator of Babe comes the heartwarming (laughs) story of a post-apocalyptic nightmare in the desert. That's... (laughs) That's how you get bums on seats, Patrick. I, I, you know, our mutual friend, Mark Fennell, I'm sure uh, would agree with that. In fact, we should maybe consult him on how this film could be best marketed because he'd know. <laughs> well, it opens up in three days. I don't think we'll get him in time. He's probably he's, he's probably already He's probably already six- seen it 15 times. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Of course, right. Mark is well known for having the largest movie collection in Australia because he's been reviewing them uh, since the dawn of time and has catalogued every one. And then, well, of course, you, all you, these streaming you, services you know- have come along and it's like, well, uh, that's kind of pointless. I'll tell you what, um, he had a baby and um, when he had a baby, he had a uh, a baby room garage sale and it wasn't even a garage sale. It was like, come around drink some booze and take stuff out of my house. And he <laughs> he gave away all of his DVDs Shit. to anybody who wanted them. <laughs> I did not know that. 
Oh, poor guy. But I guess DVD, yes, he is technology. So I guess we got to hope this thing grosses its tits off so we get to see the next one, right? Oh, uh, look, I'm so excited. My only problem is I'm going to be in Manila when it opens up worldwide. So uh, I, I, I'm concerned. Are you looking forward to I, seeing it dubbed in Tagalog? <laughs> well, I'm not too sure if I can handle the Pinoy version. I might just have to wait until I get back to the United States to watch it. And the other thing is my girlfriend will be with me in Manila and I don't know if I can convince her to come along and see Mad Max. I'm, I'm, I'm me, of course. I am just so bang up for it. Yeah. I'm salivating. I am salivating. Well, mate, that's actually all we've got to talk about today. Uh, you know, I guess next time we speak, of course, I'm going off to um, South Africa for a couple of weeks and uh, then I'm off to Ossert and the Gold Coast. So I'm, we're not going to be able to do this for a few weeks, but I can assure you that by the, that by the time we speak again, we will have both seen Mad Max. <laughs> that's right. Fury and, uh, Road. Hell yeah. I would have been in Asia. You would have been in Africa and we'll have lots more to talk about then. We're global. <laughs> we're global, baby. We're global. All right, Dan Illick, thank you very much, and we will speak to you again on Serious Business uh, in a few weeks. Toodaloo. <laughs> is, that, is that what I say? Cowabunga. Cowabunga. Can I say cowabunga? Cowabunga.